What's up and welcome back to Mental Edge Training Coach here with Chad Hermanson. Today, I'm going to be talking with Kai Correa. Kai is the major league infield coach for the San Francisco Giants. He's one of the best infield instructors in the game right now. Met him at the University of Northern Colorado when he was still a college coach. He has some amazing insights about proper fielding technique, how to get it done. He shares his story with us as well. So enjoy this conversation with Kai Correa. All right, Kai Correa, what's going on, man? What's up, man? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So where, where are you from? Where are you? Well, I'm calling you and you're in what, Fort Collins, Colorado? I am in Fort Collins, Colorado. That's where I live in the offseason. Nice. Tell us how you got out there. So obviously I, I coached at the University of Northern Colorado. That was my 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 division one coaching stop, which is in Greeley, Colorado, you know, 25 minutes from here. And I married a gal um from Fort Collins and her family's here. And so this is where we make our off-season home. Very good. So she she said there's no way I'm going to a warmer climate spot in the offseason. Yeah. No, no, no shot. You know, we <laughs> we 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 negotiated potentially a Hilo, Hawaii, my hometown. But, you know, that's not a, a hop, skip and a jump away. Yeah. So yeah. DIA to, you know, all the National League cities is pretty easy, far, far easier than uh, Hilo is. That's right. That's right. Well, I, I met you a few years back when I, I was scouting and you were at Northern Colorado and you, you were an assistant coach running the infield program over there. And but we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit. I'm really curious and interested about, you know, how did Kai Correa become a coach? What was your route to get to where you are today, which is a big league infield coach, but where did this all start for you? You know, it, it starts with my roots as a kid, right? I grew up in Hilo, Hawaii. Uh, my grandfather was a longtime high school coach. My father, my uncle, my cousins were high school coaches. And so coaching was the family business, mm -hmm. right? And so when you're the son of a coach and the grandson of a coach, you already have, a, you're going to have a really extremely negative association with it <laughs> or an extremely positive association with it. And fortunately for me, my experience was largely positive. And so I wanted to be like them. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then it also kind of expedited my, my baseball education. Cause now you're sitting on the bucket. You're sitting on the bench with longtime baseball men talking about whether you should take the pitcher out or not. Mm -hmm. Talking about whether they're going to hit and run, talking about uh, whether we should throw through a return or pump fake and throw to third, right? And so you're getting to hear these nuanced conversations that a lot of young players aren't privy to. And it gave me a kind of a coach's lens into playing as opposed to a, you know, a player's lens into playing, which was very fortunate because I wasn't that great of a player, you know? And so from Hawaii, I, I, I was fortunate enough to play at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. Mm -hmm. And there I continued to kind of, you know, broaden my, my, my baseball horizons by coaching in the off season. And so I, I coached at a, a facility called boys of summer uh, that back in like the nineties was called Poseboro RV. And they had uh, Jason Hamill and, and, and Lincecum and, and, and Lilla bridge. And a lot of those like Northwest names of your generation um, right. in, in the major leagues, they were from up there and they played at that facility. And so that's where I kind of got to, to get my start into coaching in summers and off seasons um, between uh, uh, between playing and college. And then at the end of my college playing career, um, my head coach, Brian Billings offered me the opportunity to, uh, to be the, to be the infield coach. And, and I said, yes, on the spot, I said, I'm in. Mm. And, uh, and then I found out that I, you know, I got 3,500 bucks a season 
3,500 was more than zero. And so I right. continued to coach summer ball. I gave lessons. And, you know, at this point, when I first started coaching now, you know, over, over 12, 13 years ago, um, that was the dawn of tech and modern coaching mm -hmm. in terms of hitting and pitching. Right. But infield play was still sacred. Team defense was still sacred. Base running was still sacred. It was still about effort and attention to detail and, and quali quality reps and quality reps. And so I was drawn to that because it was the way I was educated into baseball. Um, and so I had that tr very traditional old school root in, 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 in terms of my baseball education. And it fit into the defense and base running and infield play. But then at the same time, I also sought things that were measurable. To, to make infield like hitting was being measured, to make infield like pitching was being measured and to have some science into the development and blend the two because I understood that the modern player, they want to know why, mm -hmm. right? They, 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 they wanted explanations. They want, they want progress to be shown that, you know, you give lessons. That the modern parent also wants to know why <laughs> and they want updates. And so I was constantly <laughs> trying to take things from, from pitching and from hitting and from other sports and kind of push things forward and use film and use charts to, to also, you know, measure the, the old school infield values that I believe in. And so at the University of Puget Sound, um, to subsidize my income, I started doing a lot of camps and I'd go to a lot of guest institutions, at, you know, and, and go to, you know, top 96 camps or Stanford camps and, and be the guest infield speaker or be one of the helpers. And that opened the doors for me to, to move on from Puget Sound. And the head coach at Northern Colorado attended one of those camps. Um, and he uh, he reached out to me and, and invited me to be his infield coach. And so this was a big break for me to, to go to the Division One level. And, and there I continued to, you know, try to be on the cutting edge and still honor my roots, you know. So still, still emphasize securing the baseball and playing catch, but also try to maximize positioning and get creative with drill design and make the most of indoor spaces. And so fortunately for me, I was around two head coaches now, Coach Billings and Coach Iwasaki, who really empowered me and gave me autonomy when it came to defense. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to be around some, some budding young infielders who were also talented. And so we had some defensive success at both institutions. We both broke the, the fielding percentage records. And that gave me the opportunity to speak at ABCA uh, on, on multiple occasions. And so at those conferences, as you know, they're pretty well attended by professional baseball teams. And then that was kind of my, my gateway into professional baseball. Uh, um, I served as the lower level infield coordinator um, for, for the Cleveland Indians, now Guardians organization, mm -hmm. then the, the overall defensive coordinator. Um, and I was around a lot of veteran infielders, Carlos Baerga, Robbie Thompson, John mm -hmm. McDonald, Travis Fryman. And um, they were so gracious in taking me under their wing and showing me the ways and the challenge of the journey of being a professional baseball player, because being an outsider to professional baseball, oftentimes coaches will fall flat on their face when they don't have the respect for the journey mm -hmm. and the respect for the difficulties that come with being a player. And for me, those got those men, they were my teacher. They, they really helped acclimate me into professional baseball. And then finally, the, the last step is that I was fortunate enough to get an opportunity to join Gabe Kapler in, in San Francisco and, and be his bench coach and his infield coach. Uh, but the, the jerseys, uh, the size of the stadium, all those things have changed along the way. But my, mm -hmm. my routine, my responsibilities have largely <clears throat> stayed the same, coaching infielders um, and coaching overall team defense 
and, and trying to find kind of modern ways to measure and, and push the envelope forward, but to get good at old fashioned things. Yeah, that's incredible. You've mentioned a few times that you have some measurements, right, for infielders. Can you tell us more about that? What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's always a tough question. So defensive metrics have been around, as you know, for years and years. And their reliability is very, very poor, to be really honest. They've mm. changed rapidly. They're missing components. They're missing positioning. They're, they're missing the appreciation of how difficult an off-balance throw is, right? Mm -hmm. So they've never been trustworthy in itself. And the eye test has always been a really important component to infield play. However, in modern infield play, uh, Major League Baseball has so much center of mass tracking, right? So they have these devices in ballparks that measure where an infielder is, measure where the ball is, and measure how much time he has to get to the ball. Mm -hmm. So now there's some nuanced stuff that's missing like hops, yeah, as you know, but at the very least, it's a much fairer play grader. And so each organization has their own, you know, in-house stuff that, you know, we, we don't talk about publicly, but the public facing metric outs above average, um, which you can find on Baseball Savant is a great database for a young player, a parent and a young coach to go in there and just look around and see how they allocate points and see how they measure arm strength and foot speed. And so that's for me, um, if, as an outsider to Major League Baseball and then as a Major League Baseball employee, that's a really useful tool um, to kind of blend and see, okay, I really like how this guy looks when he fields. Let's see how he's graded. Okay, and mm -hmm. then let's see if where am I alike and where am I different, different as you're calibrating your own ability to evaluate infield play. Okay. So, you're yeah, you're getting measurement and information data, matching that with your coaching eye. Right. And like, I like this guy, I like his positioning, how he gets in front of the ball, where he fields it. Yeah. Right. All that stuff. And then you're like, you go look at those numbers. You're like, okay. Like, so you, it's kind of, would you say confirmation that like, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this. Yeah. You know, I think it can be, <laughs> it can be confirmation. It can be cross-checking. You know, it can be a little bit of everything. I mean, you know, you were scouting at the dawn of the models. Right. Or, you know, the computer is deciding the value on a certain player. And so sometimes it can be useful in the sense that it helps cross check or it makes you look twice at somebody that you wouldn't have mm. or, or check yourself. And then sometimes you can get lost in them, too. And yes. so instead of thinking of it as a replacement of a human, I just think about it as another human in the conversation sitting at the table, <laughs> you know, someone else that I can sit there and, and bounce ideas off of just like I would another coach. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So, so you initially started at the d3 level of coaching it it period so so that was kind of your first introduction and then for those that like wow this guy went from player to coach at the d3 level to now all the way to the big leagues you had a couple stops in between there and tell us your story about how you got to university of northern colorado with coach carl yeah so like i said earlier um i, I was lucky enough to speak at a lot of different yeah, at camps. And I spoke on infield play at a camp he attended in, in Southern California. And so he was there to observe and recruit players. And he he watched the way I worked and, and described infield play and wanted to, you know, take a step forward defensively. Um, and he had a really strong staff in place with R.D. Spees and Patrick Perry, and he had an opening. And so I kind of fit that mold as he had a hitting coach and a well-established hitting coach, well-established pitching coach. And he brought me into... Uh, to to coaches in field um and that was a, been a very very common thing theme for me in my career is you know i've been very lucky 
lucky in the sense that I was always in, in the act of trying to be good at my current job. I was never trying to get the next job, but mm -hmm. someone happened to be watching, looking for the next job. Mm -hmm. And I was just so, you know, blinders up on, on the current thing I was doing that I wasn't caught trying to make an impression or put on a show. I was simply trying to coach the guys in front of me. And, and oftentimes somebody was there who, who noticed. And so I'm grateful that those things have happened in my career. Yeah. So you, so you were completely just focused on your personal process, getting your players better, teaching them what, you know, not worried about, okay, how do I get to the next level D one or even into pro ball that just happened now. How yeah. long, how long were you at Northern Colorado? Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I thought it was unlikely to get a full-time job coaching college baseball in the very beginning. So mm -hmm. when I became full-time at Puget Sound, that was worth celebration, worthy yeah. of celebration. And then um, when I got the opportunity to be a division one coach, I'm already coaching a level player that was mm -hmm. far superior to my ability. So that was a dream come true. So every one of these stops, it, it, it was like my world series already. Yeah. I, as, okay. a, as a kid from a small town up, you know, I never looked <laughs> beyond them because I didn't think beyond them was realistic. Right. When I was a division one coach for those three and a half seasons, um, professional baseball is a, is a pipe dream, right? Yeah. I didn't know what a yeah. coordinator was. I didn't know what a Rover was. Okay. I didn't know what, when they called me and talked to me about Rose, I had no idea what was going. I knew what I was passionate about. I knew what I, portions of the job I enjoyed, but I didn't know what that looked like. Okay. And so, so, so you didn't have a dream board on your wall sitting next to Gabe Kapler in, in the dugout. No, I did not. <laughs> I, all I wanted to be was a, uh, a, a full-time collegiate defensive coach. Okay. That's, that's it. You know, like they have the ability to support my family and do baseball every single day because mm -hmm. not too many people on earth get to do baseball every single day. Yeah. And yeah. so that, that was my dream. And I thought it was going to take years and years to accomplish that in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's kudos to you. If you fast forward to that process a big time, right? <laughs> oh, so, you. so you went to Northern Colorado, you were there for a few years and then you, like you said, your head's down, you're just doing your work. And then all of a sudden a big league team comes calling, right? Tell us about that experience. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm driving home. It's almost Thanksgiving. Uh, I think 2017. Um, I thought it was a prank call. You know, I, I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know exactly what, what it was about, and the yeah. direction it was going. And um, the, the assistant director of player development and I just chopped it up and talked about infield play and thought processes and things like that. And at the end they said, Hey, would you like to interview for a job? I'm like, sure. I mean, I, I, I didn't own a suit. I'm from Hawaii. If you're going to go something nice, you had a lower shirt. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So I got, they gave me, you know, like seven, eight days notice before I was in progressive field. So I'm like trying to buy something off the rack. I can't even have it altered, there you, you go. know, and I, and then I got to watch a YouTube video. Okay. You, you know, you have just this button, but you sit down, you undo it, you, you know? <laughs> so that's how unlikely one handed, I, you got to figure yeah, out how to do it. Exactly. Exactly. Right. That's, 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 that's how unlikely um, I, I thought moving on was, I, it wasn't even a, a thought. So, the, so this is the Indians that call, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they call, you have your interview. I'm sure you wowed them to death and they offer you a job. Where, where did you first start out? 
So I started out being based at the Arizona uh, facility, which I tell people all the time is like one of the greatest jobs in minor league baseball because you sleep in your own bed every single night, mm-hmm. right? Your longest road trip is from Goodyear to, to Scottsdale. Yeah. You know, so you're this this is rookie ball, right? The yeah, so yeah ball. exactly. So I did extended. Yeah. I did rookie ball. Um, you had a bunch of guys just at the start of their career that were very comparable in age to college players. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a perfect first role. And then I kind of expanded into short season a little a bit then they did um did instructs was able to re- kind of have a leadership role in, in instructs and then that kind of kind of scaled it as time went on so across all levels what was it like coaching that kind of first year professional that either high school kid that's 18 or a college guy that's 21 22 he's he's got some experience did you find differences right away with those kind of age gaps yeah, well, I think the big the big thing right away was the ceiling, right? As you know, right? When you walk, people, you, you walk into a GCL, AZL game and people expect it to be, you know, like a, some kind of sloppy, poor level of baseball. Every single guy on that field has the potential to be a major leaguer. Mm-hmm. That's why they were internationally signed. That's why they were drafted. And so mm-hmm. I think the overwhelming thing was the ceiling ability, the things that people were capable of doing. You know, the, the 60 runners and the 60 throwers and the mm-hmm. 60, you know, they're everywhere. There, there's bat speed, there's arm strength, there's physicality everywhere. And so I think the thing that was overwhelming for me is the spectrum of the floor, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, yeah. there were guys who were tooled out who couldn't do the same thing every day. And then there were guys who were kind of lighter on tools who, you know, who were extremely routine oriented. And so there are different things that you have to do with, with different folks. But it was far different than collegiate baseball, where you had recruited all of these gentlemen and, and you're just building to win as many games as you can on a given weekend. Mm, yeah. This was more about like a long time journey. This was my first time entering an environment where we're kind of forecasting three, four years down the road. And we have time to pick out singular things along the way because we're not worried about completing a butt defense on Friday night. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was the, the biggest switch. And then I think the other part of it that was that's the big change is that um, you're a co-pilot with the player, right? It is the it, it is a professional player and it is his career. He's not an amateur player and you're not responsible for him. You're partnering with a professional player on his journey. He's got to drive. Yeah. Right? And you're there to be the guardrails, to give advice, maybe say, hey, pull over here. Let's take a break. Hey, take this turn, <laughs> right? You can, but you can't grab the wheel. You can't grab the wheel for him because it's it's the most thing, important thing he's going to do career-wise, Um at that point in his life that it's really interesting you said that grab the wheel have you seen that happen like instances where you're like a coach is just way too involved yeah i think that's pretty common i think every coach is guilty of that because you have the passion right yeah where it is hey i want to help you and i know something you don't know and and we go and i think coaching without context happens all the time Mm -hmm. um and not only in professional baseball at every level because coaches, they think that they show that they care and show that they know by immediately teaching. And so something that I try to do is always kind of give myself that space and, and wait a little while. But yeah, it's something I witness pretty often. It's something I've been guilty of myself. I think we all have. Yeah. And, and imagine with coaches too, right? You're, you're still pretty young, right? At this point, and you're, you're growing as a coach, trying to learn what's my voice, you know, how do I present my information and the videos that I've seen and watched of you, like you are, you've nailed it, right? In regards to how you present, right? How you talk to your players. Is that 
like anything, it's kind of that growth mindset. Is that something that's taken a lot of, a lot of time and reps to get to that point? Yeah. I mean, it's taken a large amount of reps and it's taken a large willingness to accept feedback. Mm. Uh, it just become part of my process that after sessions, the coaches who are around me, the younger player, the veteran player, I'm going to ask them, Hey, how'd you think that went? What was the best part for you? What was the worst part for you? Yeah. And I think I've honed my message and my communication style by allowing that period of, of reflection and feedback and not being so prideful mm. in, in mm -hmm. the way I think I've executed to not take that. And I think that that's kind of what's come out in the wash in present day is the impact of so many people along the way, because I was willing to ask those questions and, and listen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And from what I gather, you, you still have, you're at the highest level now, right? Still the humbleness to continue to learn, right? And continue to grow. You mentioned guys like Bayerga, Travis Fryman, uh, John McDonald, who is one of the wizard. Like good guys that played in my area, like dude, John McDonald was incredible, right? Yeah. What if you can remember any of the, some of the things that they taught you that you weren't quite maybe aware of at that point? Yeah, you know, like I think I'll give a couple of different examples. So Travis Fryman um, is an incredible deliverer of information because he's elite at simplifying. Okay. And so he'd always say, son, you got a big toolbox, but today let's just pick one or two of them to use. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and then he'd also always tell me, hey, don't go too fast that you can't take us with you too. Right. And, and so he was elite at rem remind me to simplify and remind me to slow down. Mm -hmm. Right. Because he'd been through the ups and downs of his own journey as a player and then a coach. And so he knew when to, hey, it's time to slow down. It's time to cut this session off. That was his major impact for me. Um, John McDonald is just an absolute wizard, as you know. And so for him, a lot of things are about feel mm -hmm. and trying them out and doing those things. And he likes options. And through Johnny, I learned that good can look a lot of different ways. Because there, you know, if you saw John McDonald on the street, you wouldn't recognize him as a major league shortstop, yeah. right? He's a shorter, stockier gentleman, but he can do some incredibly dynamic things. And so he kind of reminded me, all right, you shouldn't be boxing people in to specific boxes. Right. You should be trying to maximize people's ability and give them more options to make a move. Mm. And then for, for Carlos, um, he was amazing for me into giving me the insight into the Spanish speaking player, mm -hmm. their journey and what that experience is like. And, and then he was also great anecdotally about talking about how different techniques work for him. Right. And we talk about, you know, I remember a day where we're talking about the thumb down flip to, the second base mm -hmm. i'm talking about okay that's something you use when you're kind of in that mid distance and carlos you know reminds me no don't for, you know when i would close into the lane and i'm right next to the runner that's another time when i'd use it even though i'm close because it's too close i'm too closed off to, with my shoulder to open my hand this way and so it's those little experiential things you pick up along the way that i just spent i was drinking out of a fire hose yeah you know, for those multiple years with those guys because every day there was a lesson like that and every day there was a, a new chance for me to integrate that into, into my teaching style. Fascinating, man. That's, that's so cool. Yeah. I, I was drafted as a shortstop, right. And I, I spent a, a little time in the infield in pro ball and um, what I see now, like with, I guess some of the routines, like I, I watched, I've seen you, I've seen Ron Washington, right. Getting down on your knees, hitting the short fungo, 
there are certainly different routines I think that have developed, right? Do you have a, a specific routine you do during the year with like, is everyone a little bit different in their routines in that regard? Yeah, you know, when I think about drill work, especially pregame drill work, mm -hmm. you think about things in two categories, the vitamins, right? That fits everyone, right? Mm -hmm. It's not gonna hurt anyone, you take it, you're gonna be slightly better. And then the prescription medication that you take and you're going to be better. And I take, and it's going to make me sick. Yeah. So okay. you kind of have to bucket those activities. And when you're talking about the 1% of the 1% in the major leagues, there's a lot of prescription medication when it comes to the drills, because there's a lot of guys who are different there. They have outlier behaviors. And so every guy's routine has some element of hand activation, right? Like the wash drills, mm -hmm. right? Like the Perry Hill wide base funnel activities that's just all to prepare your hands prime your hands and your eyes for that final hop those last two hops so you can problem solve so you can go forward and backwards you can backhand you can forehand and then every guy's routine for me has some kind of element of footwork patterning mm -hmm. right so as you know there's a variety of angles and, and routes you can take on the infield and guys have strong routes and weak routes strong patterns and weak routes weak patterns and so we kind of spend some time hammering and preparing for those weaker patterns because those are the ones they do less intuitively and then every guy has some element of full speed reps in their pregame something that's good they're going to see the ball come off hard it's going to skip and they're going to have to make a decision at a game speed so that way the first game ground ball isn't the firmest isn't the toughest isn't the rangiest one they've got in a given day and so there's slight variance between each guy in an infield and, he, and and their their veteran status versus their younger their workload, they just played five games in a row versus they had two nights off yeah. and everything in between. But that's kind of the basic foundation for each of each of our guys' daily routine. You, you mentioned some like weak patterns, right? Some guys have, some don't. Can you give us an example of what, what that looks like? Yeah. So, you know, let's say balls to our glove side, mm -hmm. right? There's a, a bounding ball, which I'm going to play through one-handed and close my shoulder and throw Mm -hmm. Then there's a bowling ball where I'm going to play through one handed and I'm going to close my shoulder and throw on the run. And then there's a rolling ball that's going to beat me to the spot and I'm going to spin. And then there's a hard shot that I'm going to give ground on and then close my shoulder and throw. And there's a hard shot I'm going to give ground on and spin. Right. So now <laughs> to one quadrant of my body, there's five different patterns I just listed. Mm -hmm. Right. And your average shortstop, whether he's 12 or he's 32, is going to do three or four of them better than he's going to do the fourth or fifth one. Yeah. So that's an example. Yeah. You know, a lot of young infielders, for example, if I'd never seen an infielder play before and he's only played the middle, middle of the field, oftentimes his weak pattern is going to be the hard shot where you go backwards because you're just so geared on going forward and going downhill and charging the ball. And that's what you've done since little league that becomes your tough pattern. So that's a very common um, weak pattern. Same to the backhand side. You have that same variety of angles and routes. And oftentimes you'll find more weakness on the backhand side um, for, for one of two reasons. Young players are coached away from backhanding. right? They're told to get around it as much as possible. And so it reduces the quantity of reps they get on backhands. Mm -hmm. And the other reason, and you know this as a scout, is that arm strength is such a determining factor in the ability to play a position. Yeah, And balls to the right that create momentum away from first base have are that separating factor. So some of those guys have weaker backhand patterns because they know they can't make the throw. So they're just going to rush through, through it, right? They're not secure enough in their ability to throw it. And so it hurts their ability to catch it, you know, and, and squirrely things happen. But th that's an example of what I mean by, by, by patterning. 
And yeah. so what we try to do is, is bucket those patterns and um, have an understanding of which our infielders strong and, and, and weak ones and, and, and kind of go after it. And then the goal is in practice, increase the rep quantity of the weak ones, but in the game, whenever you can set up the strong one, mm. take the route to, to showcase your best pattern, your best glove skill, your best arm angle, your best throw. So you can show it off to the guy that might is interested in signing you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you, so you spent some time in Cleveland, right mm -hmm. now that was that mainly all with the minor league system. Yeah. yeah. I was fortunate enough that, you know, that Tito and his staff are not only wildly successful, but they're, they're very welcoming. Mm -hmm. And so I did a, a handful of trips up there and got to, and spent some time in big league camp, just observing and catching yeah. up babies and hitting the random fungal and sitting in a meeting. And that was a really good exposure into the, what day-to-day -day looked like, yeah. what the workflow looked like, what the stress looked like on guys, what the hours spent looked like. And so that's uh, that's kind of my, my the start of my big league exposure was with Tito and his staff. Yeah. How's the fungo game? Oh, I enjoy hitting a fungo. <laughs> uh, that's, that's something, uh, you know, it, it, it's something I love to do and the different shapes and the different fly ball shapes and ground ball shapes. So yeah. I, I'm not I'm not impacting the baseball as much as a large human being, but I, I would like to think I can control it. You know, the I after when I got into the coaching side of things too, um the fungo, it's fascinating, right? Of trying to learn how to hit it. Cause the guys would say, Well, you have to, if you're a right-handed fungo hitter, right? You got the bat in your left hand, you're throwing yeah. under yeah. to go, right? I was always the opposite. Like because yeah. just guy was like well i don't hit fungo so i flip with my left hand exactly so which way do you go i go i go the across so but, so you go the professional way yeah right? allegedly is, I, it, I, is that I a big is that a big thing in pro ball like you have to no, go because like there's an entire generation of veteran <laughs> coaches who got world series rings and yeah a lot of success in the belt that costs like that so you're not going to say one's better than the other yeah so there's whatever works for you right yeah whatever works for yeah. you I, yeah i i think my key to this whole thing is everyone wants to look pretty hitting fungos and then they hit the same ground ball to every guy. Right. You know, and what right. actually trying to do is create rep variety. And so what I'll tell people who are first learning to hit the fungo is toss yourself the pitch that you would have hit to that position. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, like toss yeah. one low and away and hook it. Hook it. Yeah. Toss it in <laughs> and spin off of it. Right? right. Because that ball is going to actually be more representative. You were never trying to ground out the shorts though. Right. And so if you toss yourself a meatball, it's going to be a weird ball flight. Sure. So, you know, I'll yeah. toss it high, I'll toss it low, I'll toss it away, I'll toss it in. And I try to give those guys different looks with a different bat angle. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's fun. I, I love oh, it. Wow. I hit a mean fungo. Love it. <laughs> That's awesome. So, you, so you spent some time with Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Now you get the call to come over to San Francisco. You get a big league opportunity. What was that call like? Who did you talk to? And what was that conversation about? You know, Coincidentally, um, and 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 Cap has talked about this publicly, but he interviewed me for his original staff in Philadelphia. Oh yeah, um, but it, I was yeah. I was only um, I was only twenty nine at the time, so it would have been quite the like quite the move. But that's how he and I really got to know each other. Is we spent a lot of time during that process, um, and at the end of that, um, you know, he gave me a pretty positive review and just said, "Hey, you know, this now is not the time, but." You know, you know, your time will come. 
And I just thought it was a nice thing to say. And sure. For all I knew, I was never going to interview to be a major league coach again. And then two really short years later, here he is in San Francisco. And so that's how that transpired. And then there was much less, you know, pressure isn't the right word, but it was much less uncertainty this time around because it was the same gentleman and the same process mm-hmm. been through around, uh, been through. And so that's kind of it. So it's almost like I interviewed for the job two years before, you know, to yeah. a certain extent. Obviously yeah. there were some refreshers and he was continuing to be in contact with folks and and track my development and making sure I was improving on the things that I need to improve on. But the, you know, the bulk of the work in terms of that relationship was done during the Philadelphia process. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. So I think, I think Gabe's about two years older than me. We played roughly around the same time. And um, I remember we played in the Hawaiian winter league together back in, that's when I met Carl, you know, he was the GM of our, the the Honolulu sharks. Right. Um, And that was the first time I got to see Gabe. Like he was always in the gym. Like you could, you walk past the gym. He was there. Right. It was crazy work ethic in that regard to love the gym. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure he's still that way. Well, the same, right? yeah. what, what's he like? Because you hear a lot of people um, talk about Gabe and his work ethic. What do you see there? Well, I think there's uh, first thing is there's like the intensity of the quantity and quality of work that raises the bar for everybody around you. Right. He, he His bandwidth spent on being the manager of the San Francisco Giants is maxed out in the course of the day. So how do you not as the first base coach, as the third base coach, as the pitching coach, you know, as an analyst, as a clubhouse guy, not rise to that challenge as well. It's it's contagious. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is he's a really deep thinker, right? And so as prideful as he is and as important as his playing career and, and being like a tenured big leaguer is to him, he's always thinking deeply about better ways to do things and different ways to do things. And he's he's not afraid of that. And so, you know, I commend him for that. And I, I think that thought process is what I, like I'm a product of and the reason I have the opportunity for, for my role. And then the third thing is, is he's does an amazing, amazing job empowering people around him to have autonomy. And so not only do we each get a, a, a significant list of, of responsibilities, but he doesn't micromanage you in those moments. He, he tries to tee you up for success and have one-on-one conversations and, and put the right people around you for you to succeed. And so uh, I'm very grateful for all three of those aspects to be with somebody who works as hard as he does to be with somebody who's open-minded, who's not stuck, you know, mm-hmm. one way or and doesn't, he's not without convictions, you know, he's not wishy-washy, but he's, he's the good kind of open-minded. And then third to be with somebody who, you know, trusts the people they work with. And so I couldn't really pick, uh, you know, two better managers to be around at the start of my young career in terms of Tito and yeah. in terms of cap. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. And so this is what your third year going into San Francisco fourth, fourth year now, yeah. right? I'm sure it's flying, flying by, right? yeah. going crazy. And so what does that look like for you as a coach? Right? So we, t- a lot of times we have coaches that you have your bench coach, third base, first base. So what is your complete role there with the giants? So as the bench coach, um, obviously coach infielders, um, coach overall team defense, and then serve as the as the manager, as Cap's thought partner in terms of in-game strategy. Mm-hmm. So kind of having that steady flow of conversation in terms of what they're going to do next, what we're potentially going to do next, who needs to be communicated with, uh, what, what, what things need to happen um, as kind of the games 
transpiring. And so that's kind of the, the largest three responsibilities. And then as you know, um, as the bench coach, I, I run spring training and then kind of build a day-to-day calendar in terms of the pregame work. Yeah. So you, you, the bench coach has huge responsibilities, right. Of, of getting it all put together, the managers entrusting you to like, dude, go get this done. Yeah, no, it's, um, it is a substantive role. I, I would say a lot of times that it's, you know, there's a, you know, like a COO component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately for me, um, as much responsibility as I've been given, I also have been given a significant amount of support and teammates, right? Because you think when I first came up, Ron Wotus was still here and he'd been Dusty's bench coach and Felipe's bench coach and mm-hmm. Boch's bench coach. So you have a guy sitting there who's got a PhD and doing the job, right? And so he's taking some of those tough conversations and he's guiding me as well, you know? So that alleviates that. You have that institutional knowledge, 30 years sitting there. Yeah. Um, and then on the flip side of that, on the other end of the spectrum, we got folks like Alyssa Nakin in our dugout, who's incredibly organized and an elite communicator. And and what she lacks in the formal, um, you know, professional playing career like myself, she makes up for in her ability to execute tasks. And so when you're partnered with numerous folks like that, it it, it makes the job um, far easier to execute on a day to day standpoint. Yeah, that's right. That's a, you brought up, brought up a good point. So she's one of the first female coaches in the big leagues, right? Mm-hmm. So how was that perceived and how was that taken with all the players and the coaches? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's two groups of people that need credit for when thing, anything goes right in a major league clubhouse. And the first of the players, as you know, it is the players clubhouse in, in the major leagues. And for us, we had incredibly open-minded winning baseball players. Right. They weren't uh, open minded, you know, losing baseball players. You're talking about guys who won a lot of games, Longoria, Crawford, Posey, Belt. And so when we walked into the clubhouse, um, they knew what winning looked like, um, but they also weren't afraid to try something new. And so they really set the bar in terms of opening us all with, you know, I mean, welcoming us all with open arms, Cap, myself and all the way to a Mac. And then the other primary group that needs to be commended is, is Mac herself. Mm. Right. She's so elite in weaving in and out of spaces. People, you know, the word feel is talked about so much in professional baseball and she oozes with feel. Yeah. In terms of the flow uh, and, and she's so observant uh, of our guys and, and the staff. And she, she knows who needs what at a given time, who needs this, like for her to plop down next to you when you're eating lunch and who needs space. Right. And and, sure. and I think if we all emulate have even had 10% of our skill, there would be a better coaching staff. And so those two factors are our clubhouse being a really strong clubhouse when we first got hired four years ago and her ability to to navigate all the variety of types of interactions that happen in pro baseball uh, are what made it wildly successful so far. Love that. That's awesome. Very cool. So, yeah, you, you've gone going on your fourth year with the Giants now. The, the first guy that comes across to me is Brandon Crawford, right? When I think of a, an elite infielder, tell us about Brandon. What what makes him so good? Well, I think Brandon, as you know, is, is a large human being. He's no small man, mm-hmm. but he's so incredibly graceful for a guy his size. And so what Brandon does is he completes a really, really high rate of plays at the fringes of his range. Right. So there's guys who are incredibly rangy, but at the fringes of their range, the final 10 feet in either direction, they only make 
50, 25% of the plays. So yeah. they get to a ton of balls, but they don't convert those, mm-hmm. right? That's when the careless errors comes in. That's when the wild throws come in. Brandon Crawford, he might not get to the same amount of balls as that profile, but no balls that he gets to, he converts into outs. If he gets the glove on it, he has a movement solution for it. He can spin. He can throw off the back foot. He can jump. He can slide. He can dive and pop up. He can barehand it. And so he's really, really special in uh, in in that regard. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's. And then the other thing that makes him special is man, he loves to play defense. He loves you know, it. Yeah, he loves to play defense. Um, he told me once, you know, because there's, you know, as you know, the star players in the major leagues when they take BP, guys will come out and watch watch the ball fly, you know, you're kind of, you know, oh gosh, that's, that's Miggy, that's Pujols, right? I, I want to see this guy take BP. The folks in the stands come early to watch them take BP. Yeah. His pregame ground ball routine, Crawford says, is his BP home runs. Not that he's incapable of hitting BP home runs or home runs in general. He's more than an accomplished hitter, but his ground ball routine is his time to show his skill. And, and I've never seen anything like it. And so that's the other fact there um, that makes him so great at defense is because his care care level is off the charts. Yeah, and it's it seems like, too, when he loves it so much, he, he's kind of the guy. He likes to do a little some trick plays, yeah. right, and kind of do those things. And um, are, you, are you a believer in – because some of the stuff you see on TV, right, these guys are diving, they're flipping behind their backs, they're doing all these crazy things. And then you you hear a conversation. They're like, "Well, yeah, I practice them, yeah. right? Do you guys practice those type of plays? Is that a yeah. lot? If you do, or I think it's within reason, yeah. Right? Like I think in baseball, there's the low variable stuff and the high variable stuff, and those weird one off things, the bare hand, the behind the back, the glove flip. Those are great athletic plays. They don't happen as often, and so it's about mastering the low variable. If you can make the routine play and you can take convert the outs that you need to convert then you can continue to spend more time maintaining athleticism and promoting new skills and new moves. So it's kind of a, you know, you got to crawl before you walk. Sure. Yeah. A lot of these guys like Crawford, they've mastered the crawl. When the ground ball gets hit to them and it's a routine ground ball, unless something weird happens, you're out. Mm. And so he can take the time to practice these specialty skills and maximize his range in that way. And then slowly kind of expand what's considered routine for him. And so I am for um, maintaining that athleticism and I am, am for trying different th- things and tough and fancy plays um, whenever, whenever possible and whenever appropriate. Yeah, absolutely. What is your take on, you know, cause I've worked at facilities before and you said you've worked at a ton of camps. I'm sure with a, a lot of kids, like I, I'm picturing in my mind, like that when someone fielder goes to field a ground ball, you know, you, we, we grew up, we're like, okay, alligator hands, hands, you know, like this. And a lot of guys teach here, right, where it's a little more here. What what specifically do you teach in that regard? Yeah, you know, I think it comes down to a couple of things, right? The, one of the first things is there's multiple ways to fill a ground ball, and you can have a two-handed bias or a one-handed bias. Hmm. So there's a handful of ground balls where they're what I consider 50-50 ground balls. The short off that arrives perfectly at the point of your your triangle, you know, in your fielding position. The rolling ground ball that's not hopping at all, kind of a nice, easy, low, long hop. There's there's no rhyme or reason to do one or the other. And if you were ahead of a little bit more of a, you know, two-handed bias, then maybe the, the proximity between your two hands and the angle of your top hand would be different than you're a guy who's going to catch all of those one-handed. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so there are certain major leaguers who play more one-handed. And so they're going to be a little bit more thumbs up here in those moments, right? Because they're going to be working in that direction. And there are certain major leaguers who love to play two-handed and they're going to be a little bit more here or, or, or here in the, or here in those moments. And so, yeah, I think it's about discovering which version works the best for you, which is going to lead to highest catch rate and the highest level of ball security. And then that's the, the one you hammer in, mm-hmm. but I'm not a locked in on this guy. That's for sure. Just because the lack of athleticism that creates what I tell kids all the time at camps is when you break the law in the United States, we put you in handcuffs because <laughs> when you're in handcuffs, you can do less. So right. why would you put yourself in handcuffs on a baseball field? Why would you limit yourself? Right. Fast exchanges, fast glove moves, most maximum adjustability all comes when your one hand dominates the catch. Yeah. And so one thing I'm big on, as opposed to emphasizing the exact angle, the other hand is allowing them to work independently and not be attached. Fascinating. Yeah, that's very good. Are you a like I, I had Perry Hill on quite a while ago and he talked about his six F's. Are you very consistent with that? with his success is there any variations that you do of that yeah i mean i think that's the gold standard standard right perry was one of the first to categorize right and so he's got he's got feet i believe is number one and if you think about all the routes i discovered described earlier and the patterns i talked about earlier yeah they all fit in the bucket of his feet Mm -hmm. right and then he's got field right and that's what we just discussed sometimes you're going forward sometimes you're going backwards sometimes you're using one hand sometimes you're using two Right. And then he's got funnel, I believe. Mm-hmm. Right. And funnel is the way he's triggering the exchange, the transfer. Yeah. And so I think some people interpret funnel like you're always going to be working backwards when you make the catch. And I don't think that's necessarily the spirit of his word funnel. I think what that's talking about is the transition from the catch to the throw, moving the ball to the middle of your body where you can control the baseball. Yeah. Sometimes that happens after you move your glove forward. Sometimes that happens fluidly with the catch. The yeah. better your feet are, the more often that's going to happen fluidly with the catch. And then I think then that adds his fourth F, which is feet, um, which is that that that's the second set of footwork that the post field footwork where you're kind of gaining distance and direction, as he calls it, towards first base. And for me, I, one subtlety is, I like to flip that order. I like to talk about direction over distance. Because as you know, as an infielder, you can't always create distance towards first, but you at the very least have to create direction. You have to have your feet and your hips and your shoulders aligned toward your target to get off on a high quality and consistent throw. And then um, from there, fire and, and, and follow. And a lot of infielders are taught to follow their throw. And I think that that creates a really soft front side and lead leg sometimes. And that ball dies. And so when when Perry describes follow, for me, that means more finishing the throw with your, your upper half. You're still going to throw into a firm front side. You're not going to run through it, but you're going to maintain good direction and you're going to finish. And so I think um, at its root, like I said, he thought of that perfectly multiple yeah. decades ago, and there's yeah. no reason to reinvent it. All I try to do is think about his framework and create variants off each category. Yeah. There's no re- no reason to reinvent the wheel. The things that Brian Butterfield has developed in terms of glove action and Bobby Dickinson has developed in terms of queuing and practicing and Ron Washington has developed in terms of establishing that final hot work and Perry has developed in terms of his framework, those things will stand 
the test of time. Th those guys are the gold standard of, you know, long Tom Adrian major league infield coaches. And I'm sure I'm missing other guys, but I, uh, like I said, I, I don't try to reinvent. I, I just try to kind of take all the things that they've done and, and categorize them for my own purposes. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, dude, this has been fascinating. I'll, uh, respect your time and we'll, we'll wrap this up, but with, um, Maybe some final advice, let's say, for a young high schooler, a college-type player. Uh, what advice would you have for him as a young infielder? Yeah, I think the first thing is developing awareness, right? A lot, we've talked about strengths and weaknesses a lot over the last hour and, and knowing what you're good at and what you're not good at. And one of the greatest harms to a young player of any position is not being aware hmm. if, you, if you're not acutely aware of what your body's doing in space and what you do well. And what you do poorly, how do you know what to work on? Right. And so that's the first thing is if I would tell, tell young players, surround yourself with people and processes that can help you become more aware of what your strengths and weaknesses are. So that's number one. The second thing is, uh, you know, you really are what your floor is. Baseball is a high rep, high sample size sports we, sport. We play a hundred, hundreds of games over a period of time. Yeah. And so your weaknesses will always come out in the wash. Your lack of work will always come out in the wash. The ball will find you. Those chances will happen. And so establishing routines to raise the floor is really important. Putting in that work so that way on your worst day, you know you can put yourself in a good position to catch the ball. Right? That would be number two. And then I, I think the third thing that I would tell young infielder, and it's oddly specific, is that um, – the ability to throw the baseball is a huge limiting factor for infielders at every level mm -hmm. and treating your arm like a pitcher treats their arm and understanding your mechanics and long tossing and, and doing proper warm-ups and using band work and, and throwing plow with your balls and all of these things can create a more durable, strong and accurate arm. And it won't be a limiting factor. And that will open more avenues to stay on the left side and play different positions and somebody who can't throw. And so those are the three things that come to mind right away is creating awareness for yourself to understand strength and weakness, clear cut strength and weaknesses, raising your floor by creating really strong routines that you're not going to deviate from. So that way your performance um, always at least reverts back to at the worst, you're a productive fielder. And then finally, um, maximize your ability to throw both in regard to accuracy and strength, because that's going to create the most opportunities for yourself. And it's going to solve the most problems that happen on the infield. Something bad happens. Somebody can throw, can still get off a good one. They bobble the ball. The ball puts them in a weird position. Somebody can throw, can still erase the runner. Somebody who can't, can. So those are the things that come to mind. Dude, on point, man. This is amazing. Awesome. Now you guys know why he's in the big leagues, right? <laughs> Sharing this stuff with, with guys every day. So Man, you guys just got a clinic of infield play with Kai Correa and Kai, man, nothing but the best for you, you know, moving forward. You have a young family, right? A young daughter, just put her to bed. I'm sure. Yep. Right. Very yeah, good. She's, she's out hopefully for the night. <laughs> well, awesome, man. If, if you guys ever get a chance to catch Kai, Kai, where can people follow you? I know you got some YouTube stuff going on. Where can those fielders follow you? Yeah, so the, the Giants do an awesome job of creating those uh, Train Like a Big League Infielder series. So they're on YouTube. There's probably over a dozen now, and they do three or four every spring. So those are always yeah. fun to do with the guys. And then in terms of drill work, 
Um, there's tons of old charts and diagrams and drill work that I posted between 2013 and 2017 that live on Twitter under the hashtag Friday Fielders. And so if you go on that hashtag, some of those things are outdated. Some of those things I don't necessarily believe in now or do all the time, but it's a, still a fun foundation to look through and, and flip through those old drills and, and take a peek and maybe it'll spark some inspiration. Love it. Love it, man. Well, good luck to you. I know you got some uh, some new guys, some new blood coming in uh, for, for your season coming up, and I know you're getting ready to go down to Arizona here pretty soon. And But Kai, man, nothing but the best for you moving forward. Hopefully you guys can uh, – do some special things this year. Thank you, sir. It was, it was great reconnecting with you and I look forward to staying in touch. Awesome, man. You take care of yourself. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Okay. Man, that was an awesome conversation, right? With Kai. What a good dude. Love how he explains in simple terms, um, just the way to fill the ground ball, you know, all the terms he used in regards to creating space, right? You can see the difference when you have a big league coach, his passion, right? The things that he's he's become. He was a D3 coach who was just happy, right, with being in D3. He really didn't even think about being a professional big league coach or being a pro coach at all. And he focused and he kept his head down and he just did his process and he just loved it, right? He had a passion for it. And somebody else saw the greatness that he was doing and gave him an opportunity. So the Indians gave him a shot. Next thing you know, he's interviewing with Gabe Kaffler, right, with the Phillies to potentially get that job. That didn't work out, but he did well. He created a relationship with Gabe. A couple years later, Gabe hires him to be a Giants infield coach. So congratulations, Kai, to you. Nothing but the best. Want to make sure you guys are aware of my high school and college membership where I coach players once a week, sometimes twice a week, and – on the mental game, on live coaching. Players bring their information to me. They they bring their questions. We discuss it. We have conversations. We hear other players in the group. So if you want to join my membership, check out mentaledgetrainingcoach.com. Very inexpensive, $25 a month. Come join it. Check it out. Come hear what other players are saying. But I will see you in the next episode. Take care.